Hi, everybody. Welcome back uh, for our third and final lecture on Russia and uh, its neighbors. Uh, in this lecture, we're going to take a look at the geopolitics, uh, starting with the uh, Soviet era and then uh, moving up to the present time. And then we'll ta also take a look at the economic geography of the region. So many of the problems that Russia faces today internally uh, really stem from uh, the Soviet legacy. And uh, you'll see how that plays out as we go through today's lecture. The geopolitical structure of the former Soviet Union. The Soviet Union arose after the Russian Empire collapsed in 1917. And I should point out that there was two, actually two revolutions that occurred in 1917. There was the February Revolution and the October, 7, the October uh, Revolution in 1917. And the October Revolution is the one that brought the Bolsheviks to power. <clears throat> So the Soviet Union actually arose after the Russian Empire collapsed. Opposition to the Russian Empire included business people and workers. Uh, peasants along, uh, long uh, resented the powerful landed aristoc uh, aristocracy, aristocracy that exploited their uh, peasant labor. As I mentioned, up until uh, the uh, revolution in 1917, uh, Russia and um, its neighbors in this area were very much um, still in, in the kind of a feudalism type of economy. So initially, a broad-based coalition assumed control of the government and that in 1917. And they actually have promised uh, democratic elections uh, later in the year. But before that could happen, uh, the Bolsheviks came to power. So as I mentioned in November, the Bolshevik, Bolsheviks, which is a faction of the Russian communists, uh, representing the interests of industrial workers, seized power. Uh, their leader was Vladimir um, Ilyich Yulianov, um, better known as Lenin. Uh, Lenin was really the architect of the Soviet Union, which succeeded the Russian Empire. Lenin and the Bolsheviks restructured Russia. And we'll talk a little bit how they restructured the politics or the political territories in this area in a few seconds. Um, they fought and won a war to maintain control of Russian territories uh, in Finland and Poland, and regained um, Finland and Poland regained their independence. However, uh, and they centralized power. So let's talk a little bit about the the Soviet republics and autonomous areas. Uh, Lenin and the other leaders of the of the former Soviet Union designed a political solution uh, to try to uh, solve the different ethnicities within the country. They maintained the country's territorial boundaries, theoretically acknowledged the rights of non-Russian citizens in the various uh, um, political uh, territories that they set up. Each, national, each, each nationality received its own what was known as a Union Republic, so long as there was no overlap with Russia. And this created 15 different republics uh, that were part of the Soviet Union. And you can actually see them on the map here. This is pretty much what they would look like at that time. These are actually the independent republics now. And so we have uh, the 14 republics that actually surround Russia itself, uh, such as Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, uh, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and so forth and so on. So 14 that actually surround, and you can see they don't overlap with the Russian boundaries. And then, of course, Russia made up the 15th, 15th Republic. So as I said, uh, created 15 uh, republics. Um, each of these um, Union Republics, the highest level of population uh, had to have at least 1 million people, a location on the periphery, and a majority of population of the ethnic group for which it was named. So 
For example, Kazakhstan. Most of the people in Kazakhstan, guess what? They're Kazakhs, right? Uh, most of the people in Uzbekistan, they're Uzbekis. And same thing uh, with all the other republics as well. Uh, each republic uh, was uh, administratively autonomous with the right, with supposedly the right to secede from the Soviet Union. In practice, the Soviet Union was a centralized unitary state. Russians dominated uh, uh, pretty much everything, concessions to local administrations and cultural identity, but they did give some concessions to local administration and cultural identity. Um, there's also some ethnic group settlements inside Russia, and these were uh, the Soviets set up autonomous areas uh, that recognized special ethnic homelands within the structure of the existing homelands. So, for example, we had the Yakuts, the Volga Tatars that I've mentioned before, um, received autonomous republics. Smaller nations became autonomous regions, Evenki, Chechnya, Dagestan and lowest order groups became national districts. Now one of the things that's actually kind of interesting about this, uh, and a lot of people are unaware of, there's actually a Jewish autonomous republic in the, uh, or I'm sorry, autonomous area in the very eastern part of um, the former Soviet Union, actually right in this area here. And so it borders China and it, uh, right along the Uzuri River, right in this area here. Uh, it's a Jewish autonomous area um, that uh, Stalin set up uh, for uh, as kind of a Jewish homeland within Russia. Um, we're going to take a look next at the centralization and expansion of the Soviet Union. Um, actually, before I do that, let me just mention that today in Russia, there are 21 republics with Russia uh, obviously being the largest uh, six territories, 52 oblasts, and 10 autonomous districts. So you can see there's quite a bit of um, uh, territory that's been split up uh, to take account of the various ethnic groups within uh, Russia itself. So uh, let's move on now to take a look at the centralization and expansion of the Soviet Union. Leaders of the USSR believe that over time the various ethnic groups would come to identify with the central Soviet system and a new classless Soviet society would emerge. In the 1930s, Soviet leader uh, at that time was Joseph Stalin, worked to centralize power in Moscow and assert Russian authority over the entire territory. Um, national autonomy uh, faded uh, so that each of these different republics uh, saw their autonomy uh, begin to fade. Uh, Stalin's ruthless uh, plan uh, included state control of agricultural production and industrialization. Stalin used force against the citizens, especially anti-Soviet uh, ethnic groups. And so this is when we start to see people um, being uh, um, forced to, uh, uh, into prisons in Siberia, forced into slave labor in Siberia, and so forth, and essentially disappear in, in many ways. Stalin enlarged uh, the USSR by acquiring the southern Sakhalin Islands, which are out in this area, and here, and I'm sorry, out in here. And we'll I'll, we'll talk about those in a little uh, in a little uh, bit later, um, and the Kuril Islands from Japan, and the Kuril Islands are still under dispute between Japan and um, Russia. Uh, he also regained uh, control of the Baltic republics, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, which were independent from um, 1917 through 1940. But uh, during World War World War Two. Uh, when the Soviet Union were, was pushing the Germans back into Germany, 
uh, he regained control of those countries as well. And they remained part of the Soviet Union until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. After World War II, the USSR gained uh, territory, but not necessarily sovereignty over much of Eastern Europe. Okay, so that's, uh, uh, the, we talked about this you know, when we, uh, in the uh, lectures on Europe. So the Communist parties in Eastern Europe actually controlled um, uh, much of the territory in uh, countries such as uh, Poland and Romania, Hungary, and so forth and so on. And as I mentioned that at that time, Russia wanted them as a buffer between um, themselves and the Western European countries. Um, with that control uh, of Eastern European countries, the Soviet Union established the Iron Curtain between their Eastern allies and the more democratic nations of the West. Uh, in many cases, the Europeans resisted Soviet presence. Uh, the Soviet Union sent troops to Hungary in 1956 uh, to put down uprisings against the Communist Party there, and also to Czechoslovakia in 1968 to uh, put down uprisings in that country uh, at, at that time. Um, Yugoslavia uh, actually had pretty much autonomy over its own uh, power, over its own affairs under uh, Marshal Tito during the Cold War era. The 1980s saw a gradual loss of Soviet power uh, and the undermining of communism. Romania set its own foreign policy. Poland had public demonstrations and labor unrest. Uh, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the U.S. became political and military rivals. The uh, USSR formed alliances with countries in other regions. Uh, so, for example, in Asia, Mongolia, North Korea, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia became allies of the Soviet Union. Uh, in the Caribbean, uh, the Soviet Union had alliances with, obviously, with Cuba and Nicaragua. And in Africa, Angola and uh, several other countries were uh, formed alliances with the Soviet Union. Uh, in addition, India maintained relatively good relations with the Soviet Union as well and bought, actually bought Soviet uh, weapons um, uh, to aid in their disputes with Pakistan, which we'll talk about when we get to South Asia. Um, Speaking of history repeating itself, uh, the Soviet Union sent troops into Afghanistan in 1979 to help prop up a failing communist regime in that country. And they uh, had troops there from uh, 1979 through the 1980s. Uh, obviously, the Afghan, uh, Af Afghani invasion failed uh, and the Soviet troops came home. And I think in a lot of ways that started to single signal the end of the Soviet system. Uh, that defeat. Um, Lenin's culturally defined republics laid the foundation for Soviet breakup. Uh, because if you think about it, by uh, having these ethnic groups having at least some autonomy over their own power, uh, over their own affairs, uh, eventually they'll want more and more and more. And uh, with the weakening of the Soviet military during their uh, Afghan invasion, uh, it, uh, uh, it encouraged uh, some of these uh, different uh, culturally defined uh, republics uh, to start to seek uh, even more autonomy for themselves. Um, so we see ethnic nationalism begin to grow uh, after World War II and especially during the 1980s. In the 1980s, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, became the leader of, this, of the Soviet Union and he instituted policies of glasnost, which is greater political openness, 
Uh, so Union Republics, especially uh, the Baltic Republics of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, as I mentioned, uh, these countries began to demand independence. The Soviets threatened military intervention, but there was no real action taken. And again, it's largely due to the fact that the Soviets' um, attention was focused on Afghan Afghanistan. There are some other forces that contributed to the uh, end of the Soviet Union. Uh, there was worsening economic conditions in, uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, increasing food shortages uh, were occurring. And the introduction of perestroika, uh, planned economic restructuring to make production more efficient and more responsive to the needs of the Soviet citizens. Uh, so, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev recognized some of the problems with the Soviet system and tried to change them. And in doing that, he uh, actually encouraged um, people to press for even more changes. Uh, the election of Boris Yeltsin and the head of the Russian Republic um, in the late in 1990, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Boris Yeltsin became head of the Russian Republic in 1990. Uh, a failed military coup by communist hardliners uh, to overthrow him uh, failed. Uh, by the end of 1991, uh, all of the country's 15 Union Republics became independent states. And that's what this map is actually illustrating here, uh, the independent countries as they now exist. Uh, so this really formed, this entire map formed the Soviet Union. And then at the breakup, the, we have the independent republics on the periphery. Uh, some of the modern Russian geopolitics. Uh, uh, all the former republics are struggling to establish uh, stable political uh, relations with their neighbors. Russia and the former Soviet republics uh, have formed uh, the Commonwealth of Independent States, which is a looser political union of former uh, Soviet or former Soviet republics. Yes. Um, and so uh, you can see this is the current geopolitical framework as it exists today, as I pointed out. So this is Ru the Russian Republic, and then, of course, we have the other republics down in here. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the disputes uh, that are occurring, particularly down in this area, in a few minutes. Uh, so anyway, I was talking about the CI uh, CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States, um, which is, uh, could potentially be a possible successor of the USSR. Uh, most, uh, it's actually mostly a forum for discussion with no economic or political power, no real economic or political power. Many former republics resist um, the Commonwealth of Independent States uh, power, uh, giving the CIS more power because they fear it will become another oppressive regime like the Soviet Union. Other attempts at regional unity within the region include Russia and Belarus have a formal, formal two-country two economic and political union, uh, remember, Russian, uh, Russia and Belarusian people are very closely related. Uh, so that really kind of makes sense. Uh, they signed a weak uh, customs union pact with Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan as well. Georgia, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Moldova formed another group to facilitate trade, especially of oil, through the Caspian and Black Sea corridor. So down in this area, down in here, obviously. Um, and obviously over in here as well. Uh, and we'll take a look at some of the oil pipelines and so forth uh, in a few minutes. Um, lingering tensions within the region that, uh, that remain. Um, uh, first of all, the large Russian minorities in some of the outlying republics 
create tensions. And I already mentioned that uh, uh, the large Russian populations, for example, in Kazakhstan, uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and things like that, uh, continue to um, uh, create some tensions within those places. Um, conflict between Christian Armenians and Muslim Azeris uh, over contested territory of the Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, now annexed by Armenia. So we're talking about down in this area, down in here. And I don't think it actually shows up on this map. Uh, uh, maybe I have a, a better map coming up here. Um, let's see. Uh, troubled Georgia. Relations between Georgia and Russia are intense. Several insurgent movements within Georgia also threaten political uh, instability. Yes. Uh, so, but I don't see the uh, Armenia and, uh, uh, yes, uh, the Armenia, uh, the contest over the Nargina. Nurgan, Nurgan, I'm sorry, Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, Georgians resent Russian uh, assistance to uh, the Abkhazians, uh, which are uh, an ethnic group that are, actually live in Georgia, and they would like to break away and form their own country, Abkhazia. Uh, a, uh, uh, and as I mentioned, it's a breakaway group in north, northwestern Georgia. Russia and Ukraine uh, still have some conflicts over the naval base uh, that... Uh, uh, the Russian naval base that's actually located in the Ukraine. Uh, so this is uh, Kaliningrad, which um, if I go back uh, to another map here, we can point out uh, Kaliningrad. So this is uh, Russia, obviously the main part of Russia over here. And then Kaliningrad is this little exclave that lies out in here. Okay, and you can see uh, it's on the Baltic Sea. So it actually gives Russia an outlet to the uh, to the Baltic Sea here as well as of course up in here where we have um, St. Petersburg as well. So uh, moving on let's uh, let's see where were we here let's uh, we're talking about oh so we want to talk a little bit about uh, well actually let me mention uh, while I'm still on this map let me talk a little bit about uh, Chechnya. Te uh, Chechnya uh, is uh, was one of the former uh, autonomous uh, regions in uh, in the former Soviet Union, and it remains part of the part of Russia today. Chechnya has actually demanded some independence from Russia following the breakup of the Soviet Union. After, uh, as you can read here, after violence broke out in the mid 1990s, Russian authorities moved in in large numbers uh, moved in large numbers of troops to reassert their control, and it's actually. Um, yeah, a very tragic situation there. They essentially destroyed the capital city of Grozny, um, and many thousands of people are killed, and the Russians still have troops stationed there. We have a similar situation in Dagestan, a very similar to uh, situation to the what's going on in uh, Chechnya. Dagestan also would like to break away from, uh, from Russia, and there's been fighting there as well. And as I mentioned, uh, Russian, uh, Russia has actually sent troops into Georgia as well uh, uh, to help the Abkhazis uh, try to gain their, uh, which they're located up in this area, north of Sessia up in this area, uh, and they want to break away from, um, from Georgia and join Russia. And I had mentioned the uh, dispute over the Kuril Islands. Uh, the Russian and Japanese have yet to resolve their dispute over the, over the Kuril Islands and they're right in this area. Um, I mentioned the Sakhalin Islands uh, previously, and they're right over here, as you can see. 
Um, um, Japan demands the return of the islands which were seized by Russians at the end of World War II. Uh, and it's actually a pretty fascinating story, and I don't really have time to go into it now about how Russians uh, grabbed this territory after World War II and then refused to give it back to the Japanese uh, at the end of the war. And then, of course, this is the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad that I pointed out, uh, as you can see. And this is the Baltic Sea up here. You can see it borders uh, Lithuania and Poland. Uh, so, denuclearization, the return and partial dismantling of nu nuclear weapons from outlying republics to Russian control. Um, the Soviet Union did much of their uh, nuclear testing and so forth in uh, places like Kazakhstan, Ukraine, and Belarus, and actually had uh, nuclear stockpiles in those countries. And of course, uh, with, the, uh, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, um, uh, well, not only Russia, but uh, also the United States and Western countries didn't want those uh, nuclear weapons to be in the hands of those different countries. So uh, the United States and other Western countries actually helped to get the nuclear stockpiles that were um, outside of Russia itself in places like Kazakhstan uh, to be moved back into Russia uh, so that the Russians could control, uh, control them. Um, uh, Russia itself, uh, as I mentioned, has lots of uh, different ethnic tensions and so forth. Um, uh, and we sometimes refer to this as devolution. Uh, devolution is more localized political control. Uh, the Russian Federation Treaty granted autonomy to autonomous republics and lesser administrative units um, than they had previously. And um, advantages of greater local political control include uh, it enables people to feel more in control, greater control over local spending, and so forth. Uh, there's even pressure for uh, greater pressure for even more autonomy. As I mentioned, Chechnya has tried to secede uh, from Russia, and Russia invaded. Dagestan is also trying to secede, and even more military in intervention into the area. Um, so uh, let's move along here and um, the collapse of the USSR caused nearly immediate decline in Russia uh, of Russia as a global power. Russia's population uh, Russia's population is half of what the USSR's population was or the Soviet Union's population was. Uh, Russia's uh, weak economy can no longer support its allies, uh, places like Cuba. Um, suffered as well with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Communist ideology was seen as ineffective, and of course its military declined as well. Russia's, um, um, some of Russia's external relations uh, and problems include uh, Russian and China border disputes. Uh, and the Russia was imposed by the, uh, by the Russian Empire in 18. The border was imposed by the Russian Empire in 1858, and as I mentioned before, it has a potential for conflict, uh, especially in that Amur River Valley area, as more Chinese are moving uh, across the river into Russia. Uh, as I mentioned, Russia and Japan are the southern islands of Kuril, the southern uh, Kuril Islands, and Russia and the West. Russia is really concerned about the growth of NATO and the European Union. Uh, that now include Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and so forth. 
So Russia uh, is still a military power, as you can see. We have Soviet, or well, it says Soviet nuclear-tipped warheads, but now the Russian nuclear-tipped warheads. Um, so it, it still has a, a lot of pil uh, military power. Um, and Russia has recently uh, been included in some of the Western uh, uh, economic um, organizations such as the G8, I guess it's the G8 now, it formerly was the G7, but with the inclusion of Russia, it's now the G8. So we talked about uh, Commonwealth and Independent States, we talked about uh, denuclearization, we talked about the Russian Federation, and we talked about um, the regional tensions uh, throughout the area as well. And you can see this is an image of um, the war in Georgia where the uh, where the Russians sent troops in to help the Abkhazis. And then Vladimir Putin, obviously, is the president of Russia for the second time. Uh, he was president and then had to step down. Uh, and uh, there was another president, and then he was re-elected president after the, uh, the second president um, served a term. So let's uh, move along and take a look at the economic development in this region. Uh, we're going to um, talk a little bit about um, the centralized economic planning, the post-Soviet economy, and we're also going to talk about privatization. Um, but before we do that, let's take a look at some of these images. Now, I had mentioned before the significance of the, of the Volga River in Russia for transportation, obviously, uh, for providing hydroelectric power and uh, for providing uh, drinking water. But uh, this certainly uh, shows you the significance of the, uh, of the Volga and the Don rivers. Uh, this is a canal that connects the two rivers. And you can see this barge hauling uh, goods of some sort down uh, through the canal. Uh, let's also take a look at the data on this, uh, on this table before we move on. Uh, you can see the GNI per capita of the various countries uh, throughout the region. Uh, and this is from 2008, so uh, it's a few years old. Uh, and you can see GDP uh, annual growth, and it looks like all the countries are experiencing at least some growth. But many of these countries are coming off a very low base, so when you see things like a 12.4% annual growth rate, um, in absolute terms, that probably is not that, uh, uh, it's probably not that high. Um, the Human Development Index, most of these countries, you know, I'd say, um, you know, when we have Human Development Indexes in the, you know, like around 0.9, something like that, that's usually very good. So you can see these, many of these countries aren't doing that great. And a lot of that's due to the recent economic decline where health conditions have decreased, uh, education uh, has, um, has become uh, less accessible and things like that. Percent of the population uh, living below uh, $2 a day. Uh, you can see that really isn't too bad in most of the countries, less than 2%. Life expectancies, uh, as I mentioned, life expectancies, in, particularly in Russia, but in some of these other countries, has actually declined uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, under 5 mortality between 1990 and 2008 has shown some improvement. And then uh, gender equity seems to be pretty good as well in most of these countries. Okay, so let's talk a little bit. I talked about um, the economic collapse between, you know, since, the, uh, since the fall of the former Soviet Union. So Russia's GNP 
has dropped uh, pretty considerably since the collapse of the Soviet Union in a similar situation in most of the other countries. Although this chart does show that they're starting to improve as well. Um, causes uh, of, uh, I guess, of the uh, policies of the Soviets um, certainly uh, was partially responsible for the drop in the GNP or GDP and the chaotic nature of economic reforms that were unevenly applied since 1991. There's clearly uh, a potential for improvement in this region. There's no doubt about it. I mean, uh, this area has uh, a lot of advantages. First of all, it's vast size, although while that is good because we have an abundance of natural resources, it's also problematic because it costs so much to transport uh, goods uh, because the distances are so great. Um, so abundant natural resources and well-educated urbanized uh, population because under the Soviet system, everybody received education. Um, uh, and a lot of people actually went on to uh, the, uh, the university as well. So some of the disadvantages that the region faces are obviously its large sizes. Uh, large size really does, as I mentioned, increase transportation costs. The northern location makes food production difficult, and the struggling economy is causing many social problems, which we'll be talking about. So when the communists came to power in 1917, it was a quick, unexpected response to a very autocratic government, which was the, uh, the czars. Uh, the Soviets instituted uh, centralized uh, economic planning, uh, and that's a situation in which the state controls production targets and industrial output. By the 1930s, almost all the economy was under state control. Uh, Stalin's government stressed heavy basic industries, things like steel, machinery, chemicals, and electric, electrical generation. So uh, it was, you know, there was very few consumer products that were that were manufactured. Many of the factories were, were turned into virtual slave labor camps uh, because uh, everybody had a job and everybody was expected to work. Uh, there wasn't really much concern about the efficiencies and so forth as long as people were working. Uh, Stalin also combined individual land holdings to, into large-scale collective farms, uh, and that's important to understand as well. Most peasants uh, resisted collectivization, and uh, food production actually declined, and famines resulted, uh, and many peasants starved. Stalin also killed many uh, of the wealthier peasants, and they were known as gulaks, K-U-L-A-K-S, gulaks. Uh, who were seen as leaders of an agrarian resistance and, and obviously opposed uh, Stalin's uh, Soviet system and, so, and the uh, system of collectivized agriculture. Um, so this created a new economic geography. Marxist ideology um, physically reconfigured the countryside. Uh, the agricultural policy included the Virgin and Idle Lands uh, project in the 1950s, that added approximately 100 million acres of farmland east of the Volga River, and, my, and most of that was in the southern part of that region. Um, pastures were concert, uh, converted into grain fields. Yields uh, were uh, very disappointing, though, because this was marginal farmland. Later, uh, liberalization rules about private plots, that is, farmers could actually own uh, private plots and produce what they wished, did help to improve and then sell those uh, sell those goods on the market, did uh, improve uh, agricultural productivity. Um, 
they also added major industrial zones uh, throughout Russia. Uh, and many of these were created to, uh, to uh, be protected from German attack during World War II. Uh, it's actually, I, I actually saw a documentary about this um, several years ago about how um, the Russians literally um, uh, dismantled many of their factories in the European part of Russia as the Germans were um, uh, advancing into, uh, into Russia. They essentially dismantled many of the, of the factories and so forth, loaded the equipment on railroad cars, and moved, uh, essentially moved them further east into uh, the Ural Mountains regions and even further east than that uh, to protect them from uh, to protect them from the uh, uh, on, uh, the advancing German army and its air force. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, these were uh, they moved these uh, factories into new uh, industrial zones in the Ural Mountains areas and and Siberia's Kuznetsk Basin. And I have a map uh, here. Uh, so, essentially, what I was referring to is uh, they essentially dismantled a lot of the factories in this area and loaded them on railroad cars and actually moved them out into the Ural Mountains region, out into this area, uh, to protect them from um, the uh, advancing German army. And then, and then even out into, out into this area as well. And you can see here, this is, uh, this is our uh, Trans-Siberian Railroad. And this is our BAM Railroad. Uh, the uh, Baikal Amir uh, Railroad or Main Line or BAM, if you wish, and you know, they come together here and go up to Moscow. Um, so anyway, so we do have a lot of natural resources, as you can see from the map, a lot of oil, natural gas, coal, uh, uh, and, and so forth, and uh, many, and a lot of other minerals such as gold and silver, copper, and so forth throughout the area. Um, so um, the the Soviet plan was really to locate these industrial zones near the raw uh, near energy sources and uh, raw materials, especially metals. Uh, the Volga dominated Soviet oil production, and the Siberian fields out in this area were opened in the uh, 1970s. Um, the transportation and communication system that exists in Russia today was mostly built during the Soviet era. Many have been excellent investments uh, and are continued uh, in, with having use today. Soviet economic growth after World War II exceeded even the fast growth, growth in the United States. Technological growth was impressive. The launch of the Sputnik and early cosmonauts into space really um, frightened uh, the West uh, because they really thought that the Soviet Union was advancing uh, further technologically than the United States and other Western countries. And this really, um, I remember when I was a kid uh, with the launch of the Sputnik and then uh, President Kennedy put on a massive effort to improve uh, science and mathematic education in the United States, much like you know, we're doing today in schools. You know, the, uh, uh, encouraging more and more students to go into science and mathematics to improve our technological capabilities. And the same, yeah, history tends to repeat itself in many ways. It's it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, there was a massive housing campaign in the 1960s to uh, because there was severe housing shortages, so to improve living conditions. 
Um, consumer goods also started to become available. Literacy became universal. As I mentioned, everybody had access to school and many people had access to the university. Healthcare was universal, universal as well. Everyone who wanted a job had one and uh, there was, uh, uh, they were successful in eliminating uh, the worst of the poverty situation in the region, which is pretty uh, fantastic if you think about it, uh, moving from a, a essentially a feudal country uh, in the early part of the 20th centuries to the 1960s and 1970s, essentially almost eliminating poverty in the, in the country, in the region. Uh, problems began to appear, uh, obviously, as I mentioned, in the late 1970s and the 1980s. Um, uh, problems continued uh, in agriculture, it was still inefficient, and uh, uh, Russia actually had to import grain, had to import wheat, and uh, I'm sure it really killed them to do so, but they actually imported wheat from the United States. Manufacturing was inefficient, and the quality was lower than in the West, especially for consumer goods, and there was always shortages of, of products. And uh, I remember actually seeing in the, on the news uh, when I was growing up, uh, people waiting in line for basic goods such as bread, and milk, and things like that in the cities. The Soviet Union was unable to participate fully in the technological revolutions that transformed the US and Europe and Japan. Um, there became growing disparities between the elites and the average people, uh, and uh, there were few gains uh, for the average person, few personal gains or political freedom as well. So when we look at the post-Soviet economy, we have persisting economic turmoil in the, in the region. Uh, there were structural changes that occurred. Russia removed its price controls on many of its products, so prices began to rise, but at the same time, uh, wages did not keep uh, pace with the rise in prices, and, at, and also at the same time, uh, through the process of privatization, uh, many workers were losing their jobs. Uh, and talking about privatization of the economy began in 1993. Uh, the economy was opened up, and uh, the, uh, people could actually purchase uh, factories and, and uh, industries and things like that. Um, but um, the lack of legal and financial safeguards invited abuses, mismanagement, and corruption. So essentially what happened was the political leaders were selling things off to their, to their friends, uh, kind of the crony capitalism that we sometimes talk about. Uh, and the friends were paying very low prices for these assets that were state, were, had been state assets. And um, so people were getting very good deals on factories and things like that. And, you know, obviously could make a lot of money in the long run. Uh, the agricultural sector continues to struggle uh, in Russia and some of the other countries in the region. Uh, obviously, the limitations of the environment and crop prices have risen, but the costs have risen even faster. So even though the farmers are making more money uh, or earning more revenue, uh, their costs are rising. And uh, again, going back to the privatization, industry has rapidly privatized uh, by the end of 1994. Uh, 100,000 enterprises were privatized. Now remember, that was only within a year. And uh, today, the pro approximately 70 to 75 percent of Russia's wealth is generated by the, by the private sector. Uh, Gazprom, which is Russia's natural gas company, controls one-third of the world's natural gas reserves. And uh, some of the challenges of uh, privatization include lack of 
Knowledge opens the doors to corruption, mismanagement, as I mentioned before. And uh, the Russian mafia has organized criminals in Russia, some with foreign connections, others in the Caucasus control. Uh, it's estimated somewhere around 40% of uh, the Russian economy. So it's pretty, um, so there is a lot of corruption that has resulted since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And most of the workers have really seen very little improvement in their working conditions. Uh, Belarus's economy declined also. Uh, Ukraine is similar uh, in, in, uh, with, uh, I've seen its uh, economy decline. Uh, and so most of the region has really seen this kind of economic decline and at the same time uh, what's sometimes referred to as a fraying social fabric uh, because uncertain the uncertain economy and politics affect social life, obviously. Problems include organized crime, as I mentioned, rising unemployment, uh, women were laid off first, some women returning to prostitution, and then that contributes to problems with HIV AIDS and, and so forth. And it's not just women, it's also sometimes children are also forced into prostitution as well. Uh, higher housing costs, um, because no longer is the state guaranteeing housing for people, and decline in social expenditures, especially things like education and health care. Um, so some of the effects that have been uh, on families have been increased domestic violence, uh, rising divorce rates as um, the uh, you know obviously uh, couples arguing over money and things like that and caused uh, divorce rates to increase. De uh, as I mentioned, declining government revenues cut spending on education. Many of the top scholars have left the country, uh, but uh, uh, healthcare there's a real healthcare crisis. Uh, declining expenditures, as I mentioned before, vaccine shortages, increase in stress and environmental related illnesses um, is, is a real problem as, as all. Um, it's estimated, I've, I've read where it's estimated that 50% of all the deaths in Russia are, are related to alcohol in some way, either through uh, disease, various diseases or through um, alcohol poisoning, because in many cases people can't afford to purchase alcohol, so they make their own, um, you know, and sometimes uh, people die of alcohol poisoning, um, obviously uh, accidents uh, that are uh, alcohol related as well. So uh, we see this uh, declining uh, social fabric, and of course this map shows you the per capita alcohol consumption, which we were just talking about, and you can see in the United States the uh, per capita annual alcohol consumption is about 8.6 liters. Japan's about 7.6 liters. But you can see in Russia it's approximately what um, over more than nine liters. And then in some of the other countries it's between four and nine, and so forth. And uh, down in here, not as high, probably because of the Muslim population uh, that frowns on uh, alcohol consumption. And then the per capita annual health expenditures, I mentioned how they've declined. Uh, of course, the United States is probably a poor comparison because we pay way too much for our health care. I'd say Japan's probably a much better comparison. Uh, $2,500 per capita annual health expenditures. And you can see in Russia, it's approximately $638, Belarus, $572. 542 in Ukraine and so forth. Then you can see over in Armenia, 272, 355. So uh, clearly not keeping up uh, with health care expenditures in the former Soviet Union. 
So as I mentioned, we have street crime, we have unemployment rates, domestic violence, prostitution, health care is a problem, HIV, AIDS, and tuberculosis as a result of uh, women being unemployed and prostitution, infant mortality rates uh, are still remain uh, high, and as I mentioned, uh, toxic, toxic environmental conditions as well. Uh, the Russian region, uh, thinking about the Russian economy today, um, uh, the, region, the region remains one of the least globalized parts of the developed world. Uh, it has a more globalized consumer culture, culture or consumer, yeah, consumer culture than uh, in the past. Numerous consumer imports are now available for people of the Russian uh, of the Russian domain. For most Russians, though, such luxuries are beyond uh, their limited budgets. Uh, Russia is attracting some foreign investment. Most countries within the region are attracting foreign investment. Overall, connections with the global economy uh, vary, with Ukraine attracting significant capital, and obviously the smaller countries such as Moldova and Armenia um, also attracting some, but uh, uh, certainly uh, a less significant amount. Uh, Russia's petroleum economy is really uh, very globalized. Russia's oil and gas industry remains one of the strongest links between the region and the global economy. Uh, the geography of oil exports is being transformed with new pipelines uh, being built, and state-controlled Russian companies play a large role in this um, economy as well. And so you can see, uh, we talked about the globalized consumer culture, the oil and gas uh, uh, conditions uh, or industry, and uh, obviously there's uh, a variety of different uh, regional differences with uh, some uh, places uh, prospering, especially around the large cities such as Moscow, St. Petersburg, and some of the other large cities, but then in the rural areas, um, you know, not prospering, I guess is a good way to say it. So thinking about the Russian oil fields, uh, you know, the West Siberian fields and things like that, you can see we have pipelines that are that have been built uh, towards the east, uh, towards the Sea of Japan or the East Sea, uh, if you prefer. And then, of course, these, uh, the oil from this can be loaded on ships, uh, and Japan can be a customer for those products. Okay, and I think there might be a question on your assignment for this uh, region that talks about this, uh, Japan being an assignment, uh, a, a, a customer for Russian oil and natural gas. Uh, and then uh, the Caspian Sea, which we're going to talk more about when we talk about Central Asia. Uh, there are very rich uh, oil reserves on, in the Caspian Basin, and particularly under the Caspian Sea. And there's a, a lot of dispute about where these oil pipelines should be uh, because of the political problems within Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, and things like that, obviously Chechnya as well. Um, to get the oil from the Caspian Basin to the Black Sea where it can be lo loaded onto uh, tankers and then uh, move through the Black Sea, through the Bosphorus and Dardanelles into the Aegean and Mediterranean. And then, of course, the pipeline uh, that goes from Baku. Baku is really the central um, location for the oil industry in the Caspian Basin. Baku, uh, through Azerbaijan, through Georgia, and then, of course, down through Turkey. Uh, well, you know, and obviously coming through Turkey probably isn't much of a problem, but bringing oil through some of these other countries could be a real problem if the pipelines could be attacked and things like that. So, and then into the Mediterranean. So that's uh, that brings us to a close of uh, Russia and its um, Russia and its neighbors. Um, 
And uh, just to give us a little bit of a conclusion, this is a region that has seen great change beginning with its rise as an empire through revolution and breakup. And then ethnic and cultural differences have long played a role in this region as, we, as we've seen and continue to play a role to shape its political destiny. Although this region is rich in natural resources, its limited agricultural potential con contributes to lingering economic uh, difficulties. As well as the massive readjustment uh, that uh, growing from the political and economic heaval upheavals of the 1990s continue to affect the area. Even if these political and economic upheavals were resolved very quickly, uh, the region must still face uh, environmental devastation it has experienced. The effects on people have been uh, dramatic contributing uh, to social and health problems. Uh, much in uncertainty lies ahead for Russia and its neighbors. So that brings us to a close. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the lectures on Russia. I hope you've learned stuff as well. Uh, so uh, this is, uh, when we come back for the next uh, group of lectures, we'll be talking about Central Asia.